don't know about you, but what's dominating my social media feeds is the name of a five-year-old boy, a tragic story of a kid named Cannon Hennett. But as I want to do, I have some thoughts on it that's going to bring pleasure and pain to everyone on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you to that frontline doctor's video that had to do with COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine, opening schools. One of the themes of the response I got was, well, th- that's just so balanced. I think I got a text from a personal friend. Some of the comments on social, on social media as people posted that video was, if you're just looking for a really even-handed response to this thing that's gone viral with this video, we'll just give these 20 minutes. Here's 20 minutes that will both uh, upset you and make you happy no matter your perspective because uh, this is typical of truth. It makes partisans uncomfortable. And so anybody coming from an ideologically partisan standpoint, they've got their position, their position must be defended at all costs, even at the cost of the truth. There is displeasure, there's discomfort in hearing anything that contradicts their position. And so what I... try to do best I can, knowing I fail, is to not come from any other worldview than a biblical one. And a biblical worldview will make left, right, everything in between, uh, every nationality and ethnicity, it will make everyone uncomfortable because the Bible is otherworldly, and a biblical worldview will make everyone uncomfortable. And around this case of Canon Hennett, I'm about to make all of you uncomfortable. And just like with that front lines thing, where you're gonna you're gonna love what I'm saying for two or three minutes, then I'm gonna turn around and you're not gonna like it as much. But I believe in you, the Corey True Actual audience, to stick with me. I have budgeted about 15 minutes for the topic, and so we will get started on it in just a minute. First, my name is Corey True You're listening to the Corey True Show on his radio talk 91.9, 92.9, or wherever you find the podcast. Thank you. I am grateful that you listen, share the show with others, and on the show we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk about everything in a world where conversation just ten- continues to be more shallow, more stupid. It's, it's just a bad world in which to have meaningful conversations, so we're trying to do that better over here. And the final thing is I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday morning in Greenville, South Carolina. You are welcome to join us as we do our best to meet in a COVID-19-affected world with some caution and precaution. All right, here we go. Here are the facts of the case. In Wilson, North Carolina, there's a five-year-old boy named Cannon Hennett, and he was riding his bike outside of his home. A neighbor, I don't know that it's important to give his name. I don't like giving names of killers on the show. Uh, a neighbor comes to up to this five-year-old kid as he's riding his bike outside alone uh, with a firearm and shoots and immediately kills the child. It's tragic. It's really unspeakably sad. As the uncle of two of two boys who are about to start senior year of high school, by the way, but who were five year olds on a bike, you know, I I do deeply feel this the same way that I deeply feel other acts of violence that we have had reported to us and are part of the reality of this sinful, broken world that we're in. So this Cannon Hennett was shot by his neighbor, this five-year-old boy, uh, inst- instantly killed, 
to uh, p- police come, uh, ambulance comes, all that. The shooter, the the killer, he was arrested a couple of days later in a town not far from Wilson, North Carolina. He has been uh, indicted. He will, I am sure, go to trial and go to prison for the rest of his life. Those are the facts of the case. Now, my people, folks on the right, they had a peculiar reaction to this where the the story wasn't just one of a local tragedy, but it became a... It became a symbol. And I, I mean this. I'm about to criticize the reaction, but I do understand where it's coming from, and I'll get towards the end why the reaction was this way. But the story became a symbol because the shooter, the killer, was a black man and the child was a white child. The reaction became well, what if it were switched? What if it was a white man who killed a black five-year-old boy? Do you think we would have heard the story? Because the media is ignoring it. It was only covered on local media. It's not being covered nationally by CNN and the national versions of ABC, CBS, NBC. It's, if this were reversed, it would be the biggest story in the world. It'd get wall-to-wall, 24-7 media coverage. And so this becomes a... A point of hypocrisy. Do you see how hypocritical the media is because they apparently don't care about the lives of a white, a five-year-old when we know they would have cared about the life of a five-year-old black kid. And then there was a a further hypocrisy alleged that if this would have happened the other way around, there, there would have been riots and there would have been protests, but you're not getting any of that. And so for for those that say they care about life, then what, why, aren't, why isn't there protests in the streets over this happening? Right? So that was my people's response. The conservative response was that. Here's the response they got back, not just from the left, but from me. I think left-leaning people were giving this response, but so were folks in the middle. And then there's just me, just trying to be as biblically-minded as I can be. I tried to make clear, and I'm going to do it gently right now, the comparison is invalid for a couple reasons, but hey, stick with me. As I say, it's invalid. I, I promise I'm coming back around. You're, you're going to like me again in just a few minutes, but let me explain why the comparison between Cannon Hennett, the five-year-old boy, getting shot, and then not getting attention from the national media is not analogous to other situations that you've seen. So, for example... The, the argument from my people was, well, uh, George, Floyd caused, George Floyd's death caused all of these uh, laws to change and, and caused riots and protests and all that stuff. When it was Michael Brown, when it was Breonna Taylor, when it was these folks, it caused a stir. It caused a problem. All right. There's a common denominator here. And that's those people were all killed by police. That wasn't white on black crime. More, more than that, it was cop on black crime. It was agents of the government committing an act of violence against black people. That's, and that's not analogous to what happened here. Right Here, a private citizen committed an atrocity against a child. And he should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. We still don't have a motive. We don't know why. 
I, I've got to assume there's some kind of mental or emotional damage done to this person that there's some to, to do something so evil with seemingly no no reason. And so there's the difference. One is that it's cops committing violence versus this is a private citizen committing violence. It's the government committing violence versus a private citizen. Number two, one of the hashtags I kept seeing was justice for canon. Justice for canon. Well, canon has been as sad as this is. And this guys, it really has. It has affected me, and I'm, I'm not using a tone that's showing that. And I got to fix that, but he was given justice. Justice is when the perpetrator is arrested. Justice is when the perpetrator is punished, and this man will be punished for what he did. What happens in the activism around these other crimes that police commit against black people is justice was not originally done. Breonna Taylor's killers are still free. It took months and a video coming out for George Floyd's, the, the man who strangled George Floyd, suffocated him, to be arrested. We'll come back to the George Floyd thing some other episode. A lot of you have sent me the more extended video, and so there's some new, more nuance I'd like to add to my position on George Floyd, but I'm still very comfortable with that sentence that George Floyd was suffocated and killed by a cop. And, and it, took a, it took a video for that to come out. When, when it's been others, justice actually wasn't being done. If I give you Philando Castile, there's others. And it took activism for justice to take place. Cannon Hennett got justice. And so the, it's not actually justice I think you're looking for. It's attention. Not for yourself. But the hashtag is not justice for, for Cannon Hennett. He's already gotten it. The hashtag seems to be attention for Cannon Hennett. I want him to get attention and paid attention to by the national media like these other victims were. So two important points. Other black victims that were killed by cops are, are what initiate those all that attention and what initiate all of those protests and riots. These, this was a private citizen. And also, justice was not being done in those cases. All right, so now let me come to something that's going to maybe bring you back. I, this has adjusted my thinking on how I think about the Ahmaud Arbery case. Ahmaud Arbery wasn't killed by cops. He was killed by private citizens. Now, granted, you still have the, the reality that one of them was a previous cop, and he thought he was still going to be law enforcement and behave like it, even though he didn't have the authority to do so. You, and you, then you have to, again, recognize Ahmaud Arbery was sitting out there for months. His story was sitting out there for months. No one picked it up. It took activism for justice to be done. So again, justice for Maude Arbery wasn't being done, whereas it was for this five-year-old Canon Hennett. Now, because of the time period of Maude Arbery, the injustice thing, I can see why it would bubble up into a national news story. But what should probably happen for the Maude Arbery case and the Canon Hennett case is they're both local stories. Because... There's, there's not a, a larger national narrative to lead into. There actually is a larger national narrative about the disparity with which black people experience violence by law enforcement. That's a national reality, and so the stories lead into it, or feed into it. We actually don't have this... Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll just say it. White on, white, white on black crime, the uh, well, private citizens, that's not a problem in this country. It's, it's not a widespread issue. It happens, but it is by no mean epidemic. You know what else is not epidemic? Black on white crime. 
Black people don't, with any more regularity, kill white people than white people kill black people. It's actually very low. If, if you are murdered in this country, you are almost always murdered by someone of your same ethnicity. It's, that, that's, that's what the stats from the FBI, local law enforcement, that's how that works. And so what's probably should have happened is Cannon Hennett's story, because it's not indicative of anything broader in the culture, then the people of Wilson, North Carolina can mourn that story together because it happened in their community and affects their community. And then the Ahmaud Arbery case can affect that community in Georgia, and they can mourn that together and process that together. And if Arbery would have been given justice quicker, then most certainly I would be saying, yeah, that should just be a local story. It didn't need national attention. All right, so these two things are different. The Hennett story is different than the narrative of cop-on-black violence. And so the, the movement for canon is misplaced in that way because the two things aren't analogous. But let me give you the way that it actually is valid. Your argument here should not be about a racial disparity, that folks just don't care about a white kid. The only folks you should be mad at, if you're someone on the right, is that, yes, you should be mad at the media. They're, they are hypocritical. They, they, have, they have their agendas. And you, you can count on this reality. You can count on that first point, that if the roles were reversed, if a private citizen white guy killed a private citizen black five-year-old child, it would be international news for the next month. It would be. Despite the fact that everything else I just said would still be true. We don't have a big national problem of private white citizens killing private black citizens. It's, it's not a, that's not an epidemic issue where we do have a more endemic issue of police on black people crime. And so, yeah, the media causes this. The media causes folks on the right to get to these levels of frustration because they do have their agenda. It's very real. It's an obviously left-wing agenda. It's an obviously secular progressive agenda. And so when folks on the right sniff out a chance to maybe illustrate the hypocrisy, they jump on it. But just in this case, the two things aren't analogous. The canon story with the stories of folks like Breonna Taylor or Philanna Castile. And so we shouldn't be comparing the two, but we should take this point away from it. Our instinct, the instinct of folks on the right to, to do these types of things, to see, to, to see this as a, uh, to see this tragedy as a chance for activism, the media did that to them. The media has driven them crazy. The, and I say them even though I'm part of the right, but I refuse to be dragged around by the national media because we're gonna, going to, again, go back to the book we're going to go back to biblical worldview and just take a look at the facts of the case, compare the two things, and see if they're actually the same, and they're not. So, final thoughts. It's a tragedy, no doubt, what happened with, Kay uh, with Cannon Hennett. I feel it. It doesn't invalidate the, tra the tragedies that we, the, the other ones we've had this year and in previous years. This doesn't have to be a, a point of racial tension. It surely shouldn't be. We have no evidence that that was even part of the motivation. But we should all, and the folks, by, by the way, I know I have a few listeners on the left. This is one where you should stand with us. You should stand with us and say, yep, th this is a glaring, obvious point of media hypocrisy. That they would be covering the story differently if it was reversed. 
despite it not leading into a, another national narrative. And that's a big problem for the media. They are one of the most poisonous factors to our culture. And there you go. That's uh, my Canon Hennett uh, take. And I suspect all of you will have agreed with some and disagree with other parts. If you want to respond to it, you can do that on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax, or you can reach the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. When we come back, I like to talk about mail-in voting, and then I heard a really good sermon illustration I want to give to you. We'll do that and more when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us. We'll dive in here with the mail-in uh, mail-in ballot discussion here in one second. I got to tell you this, though. There's some chunk of you who are just faithful listeners. I know you're going to listen to every episode. I'm grateful for you. and I just have gr- really good analytics, uh, not just through Anchor, where I, 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 use, I use the Anchor app to, pr- uh, to put the show out, to distribute the show. And then I get some other stuff from my website, and then there's actual radio audience as well, and that's more anecdotal. But here's something I've noticed about the, the podcast. There are certain titles I can give my show that I, for whatever reason... There's about a hundred and some out of you who will not listen. I can see the difference in the uh, in the numbers. So like this last episode, the previous one where I started, I started with those deep thoughts from driving up the Blue Ridge Parkway. I named that podcast something like uh, Deep Thoughts from the Blue Ridge Parkway or Deep Thoughts on the Life of a Breath and the Breath of Life. And there's some chunk of you that went, nope, not doing that. That sounds too, sounds too esoteric or something. And so, I don't know, I got to be more... Uh, what is, what is uh, I have to be more provocative with my uh, titles of the show, I guess, to keep those numbers up. In any event, thank you for joining us. You can find the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. And when you send various and sundry stories to talk about, that's quite helpful uh, so that I don't have to do the work. So if you would do that, that'd be great. I have some thoughts on mail-in voting. I know this has become one of the flashpoints going into election 2020 uh, and at a time of COVID-19. The, uh, the concept of having folks mail-in ballots instead because it's safer and there's a lot of discussion around it because then the President of the United States says something like he wants to try to defund the post office uh, be, to, to diminish mail-in voting. It seems the left is hardcore for it, that we want mail-in voting. So I'm just going to give you my thoughts. Generally, I'm not opposed to mailing in your ballot if, if, I, if I can be shown that it's secure that it, that it is as secure as going to vote in person, I'm for it. I, I've, I can't think of a reason to oppose it with this caveat. As long as it works the same way as absentee voting in this way. So the way absentee voting works is you have to proactively take an action to go to the county office, go to the, the voter registration office, whatever it's called, and sign a statement or at least show up and say, because of this reason, I can't vote in that 24-hour period that we have designated, I would like to vote now. And different states open that up for weeks from the election. I mean, in South Carolina, I think it's three or four weeks before the election, you can go vote absentee. And so you have to take the proactive step. Equally for mail-in balloting, I would want that to be only folks who initiate the process. They call a number, do something online, mail something in that says, I want to vote by mail. They're mailed the ballot. 
they mail it back. Like, that's the way I'd want it done. For example, the way New Jersey just did it is they mailed a ballot to every registered voter. And we live in a country where usually half, a little bit less, sometimes we scoot up above a little bit more, of eligible voters vote. And then the registered voting number is not that much better. It's usually in the 60s, maybe mid-60 percentile. And so you've got, in a normal election, of registered voters, 35 to 40% who aren't going to show up anyway, and now they get a ballot. I do oppose that. I, I, don't, I don't want people who aren't taking their civic duty seriously enough to do it themselves, to just be an adult, take the step of having a ballot mailed to you. What I am saying to you is, yeah, you shouldn't be voting. You're not responsible enough. If you haven't stewarded this right or privilege, depending on how you see voting, if you're not stewarding that well enough to call a number, do something online to get a ballot sent to you, of course you shouldn't be voting. You're not a qualified enough adult. You technically meet the other requirements. You're 18, and I guess that's the only one. And so I, uh, I oppose universal mail-in voting, like the idea of everyone getting a ballot. I, I also don't... So that, that's number one. I don't oppose it, but it needs to be handled like absentee because this is a long-standing theme of mine. Too many people vote. There are too many people who show up to vote because I've... I've met enough Americans to know there's a whole bunch of people voting that don't really know enough. They're, they've not thought about it. They have a couple issues that they are sure about, and then they use that issue as a signaling mechanism so that they know the one or two things they care about. They find out which candidate is generally on their side of those one or two things, and despite everything else, they just show up to vote for that party or that politician that they've signaled is the one for them. And it's... I can't, I can't think uh, of an argument against the reality that it has hurt us. The, the American people voting, not, not a great record lately. I'm not talking about just 2016, but it's, it's been a rough while of folks showing up to vote. Okay, so that's one. I'm not opposed to it if it can be shown to be secure, but it shouldn't be universal. Fauci, Dr. Fauci, who's become something of a folk hero, he did say on CNN here recently, that we can do it safely. His actual quote was, if we can go to the grocery store safely, we can show up in person and vote. And he's, that's, that's obviously correct. I've, I voted twice during COVID-19 in a primary and then in a runoff. It shouldn't be getting treated any differently than the rest of the life that we have to live out in public. So that's it. Um, that's the, my mail-in voting take. Let me, let me move here. Well, since we are talking election stuff sort of there, I did get two messages, I think, one from Paul on Facebook and one from someone else on Twitter that just asked generally for a response to the vice presidential pick. I don't have a ton of response, but I'll give it to you. I don't know if you guys have noticed, I don't like politics anymore. I don't talk about it much here at all, but uh, yeah, if you want some political thoughts, I, I'm not surprised by it. I, I will, I, I'll go ahead and admit what I, what I don't have to admit. I had on my prep sheet last week to tell you that my prediction for vice president was Susan Rice because we were going into the week that he was going to announce. And so that was going to be my hot take. And then I got distracted last week about that theory of younger people in the Midwest that move south. And I ran out of time. And so I couldn't give you what would have ended up being my very incorrect prediction. But my, my thought on Susan Rice was this. 
the uh, the polling is showing, internal polling is showing, the uh, the whole election is about Donald Trump. Like when you look at uh, the the from Pew Research, there was a really cool poll that asked a bunch of people who already know who they're voting for. They asked them, "Why are you voting for that person?" And for the Trump voter, it was something. I'm gonna pull it up here. It was 11 percent. 11 percent of his voters said they were voting for him because of his character or uh, that he tells it like it is. Like they like him personally. That that was that uh, that family of answers. Like I like him. That's why I'm voting for him. The the plurality, the more popular answers were things like he uh, we we align on on a given issue or he'll he fights the left. Uh, he's not Joe Biden, that kind of thing. It was a lot of reasons why Trump voters supported Trump. For Biden, whereas the Trump voters, it was a bifurcated or actually more like multifurcated because it was like six, seven, eight different reasons. And so none of them even got close to 50%. For Joe Biden, 56% of his voters, 56% said they were voting for Joe Biden because he's not Donald Trump. Like they don't need anything else from him. They don't need any other uh, policy alignment. They don't need anything about his character. It's just... He's not Donald Trump. That's why I'm doing it. And so all Joe Biden really needs to do is be anodyne. If he can be an anodyne personality, he's got this very clear path to enough votes to win the thing because there's distaste for the current president of the United States. There's a personal distaste. And so just seem harmless. If you can seem moderate and harmless, you've got this great path. And so Susan Rice would have been the choice for that. She's Never been a politician. She is a left winger, but she doesn't have a history of it, so it's hard to establish. And she was national security advisor for Barack Obama, so you would just be having this uh, two two fairly unobjectionable personalities from the Obama administration coming around, and they just seem, frankly, boring. A Biden-Rice thing would be boring, but my suspicion is that there's a hunger for boring in the part of the electorate that is going to choose the next president because this hasn't been boring, right? These four years have been tumultuous, a little crazy, feel unstable at times. And so I thought there was going to be an appetite for boring. Moreover, everyone knows Joe Biden is teetering on the edge of dementia. He's teetering on the edge of life itself. He is going to be 78 or 9 on election day. He's looking worse and worse every day. Like he's wasting away before our eyes. Um, and so a vice presidential pick is consequential because you think, well, that person could be quite significant here. And so Susan Rice is a a, a female version of Joe Biden. Again, steady, doesn't seem to be too much of a threat about anything. But you include Kamala Harris. Now we've changed everything. Like you have this rack, this route to be bold, and you'll probably win. Instead, he went with a true radical, a real left winger, way out there, way out there, Bernie Sanders left, with some of her own character issues and questionable history. But uh, that's my thought. My thought is he actually made an error. The the political calculus that people are were trying to get to. Um, was that she was going to help with minority voters. And minority voters, in this case, means black voters. But Joe Biden crushed her with black voters. On the, on the states where they were on the ballot at the same time, 
Joe Biden was winning almost 50% of the black vote in Democratic primaries when there was like 16 candidates. Kamala Harris was winning like 4%. If the idea is Kamala Harris is going to help with the black vote, there is no evidence of that whatsoever. Joe Biden was strong enough on his own. If the idea is Kamala Harris is going to help with the black vote, there is no evidence of that whatsoever. Joe Biden was strong enough on his own. If the idea is Kamala Harris is going to help with the black vote, there is no evidence of that whatsoever. Joe Biden was strong enough on his own. The idea is Kamala Harris is going to help with the black vote. There is no evidence of that whatsoever. Joe Biden was strong enough on his own for that. Joe Biden was strong enough on his own for that. Moreover, there is uh, some really interesting polling right now, demographically, that shows black voters seem not to care too much if the vice president was going to be minority, but you know who cared a whole bunch? White liberals. White, college-educated, graduate-educated, they really, really cared. It was very important to them. And so the, the political calculus just seems all wrong. I actually think he gave himself some... He actually called himself recently a transitional figure. Like, he knows he's probably only going to be around one term if he wins, and they, they move on because he's just... He actually called himself recently a transitional figure. Like, he knows he's probably only going to be around one term if he wins, and they, they move on because he's just himself recently a transitional figure. Like, he knows he's probably only going to be around one term if he wins, and they, they move on because he's just so old. So, only a transitional figure. Like, he knows he's probably only going to be around one term if he wins, and they, they move on because he's just so old. So on because he's just so old. So uh, there you go. Yeah, I got two people wanted to know my reaction. That's my reaction. I actually think it was a political miscalculation that's going to hurt him in the long run to say nothing of the actual, uh, to say nothing of the actual outcome because that's, that's way too far out to make any, um, to make any real prediction. I'm going to take an early break. I still want to get to that uh, sermon illustration that I love so much uh, that I heard here recently in a, in a sermon. Uh, we'll get to that and a whole lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. I should have tried this more often. I, I'm re- it's not a secret, though, that those of you who listen live on radio, on his radio talk, 91.9, 92.9, that I record the show. I am not live uh, talking to a microphone on Saturday morning. And so over that last commercial break, I'm doing the air quotes with my fingers I just put out on Facebook hey guys I need uh send me some stuff for the show because I've got this one thing on the ser- on sermon illustration I want to give but what else is there out there to talk about and the the listener and or friends on Facebook f- folks that follow along they did not disappoint and so uh that's what I'm going to give you the people just started posting stories I, I said hey I, I got time to fill what should we talk about and so I'm going to start here. Um, Julian posted this to Facebook. It is from a news story in uh, a news story from Philadelphia about them trying to get rid of or to diminish their gun violence problem. Here is that story. City leaders are coming together with other community groups and the Philadelphia Police Department to combat gun violence. The city is seeing an increase in shootings. So city leaders are distributing this flyer, which reads, save a life, turn in a gun. If you safely turn in a gun, that can help get it out of the hands of the wrong people. We're going to have a lot more information coming up on action. Okay, first, your professional broadcasters, may I suggest, if your microphones can't be more focused to the person 
that it's uh, it can't if it's bad at picking up ambient noise, don't record your teaser in the middle of a median. She's in a median, and you got all that background noise because these people don't know what they're doing regarding sound design. Number two, yeah, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, a bunch of cities are seeing an uptick an uptick in shootings, murders through gun violence. It could be because of this, though. It could be that you are releasing prisoners from prison because of COVID-19. It could be because you're arresting fewer people because of COVID-19. It could be that you're talking about defunding the police and you're having the police have a a smaller footprint in your city and people think they can get away with violent crime now. Maybe all of those should be factored in as possibilities for what's happening in Philadelphia. And just asking people to turn in a gun is a really terrible strategy for public health. Next, Carson asked, what will the Republican Party look like post-Trump? What will their identity be? I've thought about this some because, you know, right now, I, I, I still think of myself as very conservative. I just think the other people calling themselves conservatives are wrong. I don't think that they know what that word means. So, or at least a, at least a lot of them don't know. Here is my, my thinking. No matter what happens in this coming election, 2020, there is a, a tiny little person who is both the, she's tiny and an elephant in the room that is the obvious heir apparent to so many voting blocks of the Republican Party and she is going to make the next Republican Party. Nikki Haley will be president of the United States in 2025. I'm calling it right now. If Joe Biden wins, uh, she will run against or, uh, she will run against a Democrat in 2024 because he won't run for re-election, and Nikki Haley will crush that Democrat. She, I'll tell you why. I'm so confident of that in a minute. Uh, she will probably be running against Kamala Harris in that situation, and she would beat Kamala Harris. If Trump wins, and we're looking at 2024, a new Republican primary, she'll win the primary and she'll win the presidency. Nikki Haley is the future of the Republican Party. That's what that will look like. Um, Which means it will be someone who is... uh, The the new ideology will get back to fiscal stuff. We'll start talking more about fiscal discipline. It'll be the first Republican candidate who really, I, I think, talks about reformation on education policy nationally and locally, thinking through uh, how to better educate for the the jobs uh, in, in tech and in coding and all that. I think that's where the, the party heads much more practical, I think is the word for her, knowing that the culture wars, I think, aren't productive, but are also very soon to be real losers. And so I think that happens too. Um, the Republican Party, I don't want to call it uh, getting more secular, but is less interested in that red meat stuff. Uh, I, think I think they get more practical. I hope that's the case. At least that's my, that's my theory. So what will it look like post-Trump? I think it's going to look like Nikki Haley and whatever she brings to the political table. Stewart wrote and asked, uh, compare and contrast the 2016 polling data versus 2020 polling data at this point in the race. So I did that. Here's, I guess, the shortest version. At this point in the race that I'm talking to you right now, 
I'm actually talking to you on August 16th is when I'm recording. August 16th, 2016, in the real, real clear politics average of polls, which I think is the most faithful way to look at data, she was up by 6.2 nationally. Right now, on the same day, August 16th of 2020, Biden is up by 7.9 in the average. So he is ahead of her. He's definitely running ahead of her. Uh, and I think, no, no question, Joe Biden is going to win the popular vote the same way Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. He may even win it by more than Hillary Clinton does. That's a poss- uh, Hillary Clinton did. That's a possibility because he can run up the score in places like California and New York. I am by no means convinced this race is a Biden race. I'm actually leaning towards a Trump win where he he loses Pennsylvania, but somehow keeps Michigan and Wisconsin as a possibility. I don't think he's expanding the map at all. It's not not like he's going to pick up a a Colorado or pick up a New Hampshire or something like that. Um, But he, I mean, in short, he can lose a state and he if he loses Pennsylvania he still wins the thing um so that uh, to to that point on from Stewart the the, the uh, polling from 2016 to 2020 it's similar Biden's running a little bit ahead of where Hillary was and you you can actually hear it I, here and here I am I think this is important I'm a fairly disinterested observer I do mean and this this will make some of you really upset I don't care who takes the office on January 2021. I just don't care. Between the two, I, there there will definitely be some policy differences. A lot of them are marginal. I, I just can't get myself to care deeply about what the outcome is. But I can see, even on the parts of left-wing media that I take part in, or, or maybe just nonpartisan media like NPR, there is a hunger for Joe Biden to win. Like, they really want it. And so I think they're overplaying their own data, maybe to their own detriment. So uh, there you go. Thanks. Thank you for uh, the comments, Stuart. To compare, to compare them, uh, you have Biden running a little bit ahead than where Clinton was, and we all know how 2016 turned out. So for those of you who are Trump people, you should know that. Biden's running ahead but not uh, not all that much more than Hillary Hillary was at the same time. Okay, I think that's probably enough of those comments, but hey, uh, do what they did. That's, that's super helpful. Uh, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, send me comments, questions, uh, stories that should be covered on the show. That's really helpful when you do it. You can find me there or at CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com. I didn't want to get to at least this story before I get to that Sherman illustration. I love when there's good news. Good news is my favorite news. I, I hope I am someone who is infectiously optimistic. I don't do well around pessimists. I get frustrated with them because I just, uh, I want to be someone and I want us all to be people who try to see the best in all situations. So uh, when I see good news, I want to share it with you. I will do that now. From Chelsea, no, that's not the name of the author. The name of the author is uh, unpronounceable, but he or she works for the Christian Post. Here's the headline. Christian wedding photographer can't be forced to work same-sex wedding, judge rules. So this goes to the long-standing uh, conflict over whether or not you can be a Christian and own a business. If you can behave Christianly 
and be in public at the same time? Or do we all have to go in public and be atheists? Or do we have to go in public and none of us get to believe anything? We can't have our own consciences. That's affected Christian florists and Christian bakers and, and Christian photographers. But here is the story out of Louisville, Kentucky. A federal judge in Kentucky has ruled that the city of Louisville cannot force a Christian photographer to work same-sex weddings because, here's a quote from the ruling, the Constitution does not require a choice between gay rights and freedom of speech. That's right. Now, also this. Um, I don't know what a gay right is. I do know what rights are as itemized in the Constitution. And those rights should be equally applied to all people. But there are no gay rights. And there's no heterosexual rights. There's just the rights that a person has that are given by God and guaranteed by governments. So I don't, I don't even know what that phrase means. But no, freedom of speech is the actual constitutional right. I have a freedom of expression. I have a freedom of religion. I have a freedom of speech. This young lady, who was the photographer, could argue all of those. One, on freedom of, uh, freedom of speech. Taking pictures of this wedding is a statement about what I think about marriage. And you can't make me say that. She can argue freedom of expression. I am an artist. Photography is artistic. And I, you can't make me take pictures artistically of this because I don't have to express things. You, you can't make me write a novel for you with a certain message or paint a picture of a certain message. I get to create my own art. And then most fundamentally, I sincerely have my own Christian's beliefs. And you can't make me violate them by working this wedding. She has three very good arguments. I'm going to continue reading from the story, a couple paragraphs down. As per a local ordinance, and as interpreted by Louisville officials, Chelsea Nelson, a wedding photographer, would face substantial penalties, including damages, court orders, and compliance reports if she declined to serve the gay couple. So she could be uh, punished for trying not to do this wedding. Here's what the court held, though. This is what they wrote. Just as gay and lesbian Americans cannot be treated as social outcasts, neither can Americans with a deep faith that requires them to do things legislative majorities might find unseemly. They are members of the community, too. I love that sentence. Just that it, it reframes the discussion. It does feel like we have to remind a secular world, hey, Christians are people. I know you think that we're some kind of power structure from the past or something, but we're actually kind of a really discriminated against hated people, and we're humans. We, we do get to have the protections that other humans get. Uh, the court also wrote, under our Constitution, the government can't force them to march for, Christians, can't force them to march for or salute in favor of or create an artistic expression that celebrates a marriage that their conscience doesn't condone. Um, oh, this next sentence. So good. America is wide enough for those who applaud same-sex marriage and those who refuse to. I have two thoughts on that. One, I'm basically positive that this judge is as obsessed with the Hamilton seek, uh, Hamilton musical as I am because the closing number after Aaron Burr shoots Alexander Hamilton, spoiler alert, his conclusion, Aaron Burr's conclusion, like his... His regret for shooting Hamilton, he ends the song with, the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. 
and then it goes into the actual real final number. So one, he used that language, so I'm pretty sure he got that from Hamilton. But number two, the concept is something I have been trying to say for a long time, but no one listens to me. This world, the country, is wide enough for people who think different things to, to be okay and not want to hurt each other and take each other's stuff and ruin each other's lives. I can just look at Bill Maher making all his money on HBO primarily by making fun of conservatives and Christians and go, good for you, man. You do your thing. I'm going to go do mine. You're, you're good. What I got to have is folks looking back then at Ben Shapiro and saying, okay, I don't, I don't agree with what you're saying, but okay, bye. You do your thing. And equally, I, w- I would want to look at the caterer who gets the, the order from a local National Rifle Association uh, chapter that says we like to cater our event. And that caterer has a big issue with guns. And I would look at that caterer and go, oh, no, you can't be made to do that. No way. Uh, same same thing if they were being asked by a church to cater something and they really don't like churches and Christians. No, you shouldn't have to do that. You're free. You're a free person. And then that person needs to look back at the Christian who's being asked to do flowers for a gay wedding and go, oh, yeah, no, you don't have to do that. We can all live together. We, we can have a world wide enough for all of us, and we can live in peace and love each other and like each other. The, the way that primarily has to happen is everyone has to stop trying to force people to do stuff. Force creates enemies. Force creates anxiety amongst peoples. We got to stop trying to use force on each other. How about this? Start trying to convince people of things and stop trying to make people do things. Finally, we're coming to our sermon illustration. I was listening to a sermon by a Presbyterian that I admire a great deal, and he made a great point in an illustration, and I'm going to take it one step further. He was talking about how the relationship of the Christian to God is often sheep. It's in the in the scripture, Jesus says he's a sheep to he's a shepherd to the sheep. There's even illustrations about uh, when Jesus says, "I am the gate or I am the door," and it's a sheep illustration because what would happen out in the wilderness is the shepherd would build fencing to keep a sheep in, and then he would literally lay down in the gate. He was the gatekeeper because he was the gate himself. He wouldn't build one. He'd lay down there. So no one's getting in except through him, and no sheep is getting out except through him. And so there's this language around the God and the sheep. And so then this preacher sees this documentary thing on the internet that showed shepherds today, and probably back then too in some way, have to go through this really hard thing with their sheep when they're getting their thickest, the wool is thickening up, they have to do this hard thing where they take them to this vat, this giant bath of antiseptic. And it's a necessity. They have to do it or the sheep is going to get infected with all kinds of parasites and things are going to hurt the sheep. So you have to do this disinfecting process in this big vat of antiseptic. And it does have to be full immersion. You got to literally, the shepherd has to hold the sheep under and the sheep hate it, and they fight, and they don't like it. And it was supposed to be an illustration about how, for our own good, the Lord has to take us through some things from time to time, takes us through some really hard stuff, as in it feels like drowning, forcibly being submerged under this antiseptic, but it's so good for us when we come out, we're better for it. So it's such a great illustration. I think there's one step that gets missed. From what I understand, sheep are pretty stupid. They're pretty dumb. But there's this 
the, the sheep in the, in the illustration to me is still a character. And the sheep knows that the shepherd cares for him, cares for her. And there has to be some moment for the sheep, at least in my imagination of the story, that as the shepherd who cares about them and loves them has done so much good for him or her, as they're submerged, literally feeling like they're drowning underneath this trial, this problem, this hard time, when they are let up for a minute to take a breath, they look at their shepherd and go, why are you doing this? What are you doing to me? And they're resubmerged back into this hard time. I think that's I think that's where I resonate is the reality that a lot of us, and the guys I would say, I'm not going to get into it with any kind of real depth, but the last couple years have been something like that for me. There's been, there's been issues. And there have been moments where I get a breath, I, get to, I come up for a breath, and I just do want to know, what, I know you're doing something, boy, I wish I knew what it was. Because this isn't any fun. And... then I think that the distance between a physical earthly sheep and the human, the difference in intellect is unbelievably vast. That sheep can't understand anything a, a shepherd is doing. But if I have the right perspective on myself, I, I then also realize I, this little nothing of a nobody, I think I might be able to know the mind of God and what he's doing. And it leaves me where I know the sheep would be as well. That when we come up for a breath, when there is a moment of relief, we just look at the shepherd and know, you've been so good to me. All I can do is trust that you know what you're doing. And I want to know why. But I don't have to. Because I know you. And I know you're for me. And you're good. And that's how I want to leave you today on the Corey Truax Show, if you're also going through something that feels like you're drowning. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.